Hi everyone, and thanks for joining us for this virtual compliance roundtable featuring top industry experts, Mark Edelman and Kelly Lipinski from McGlinchey. My name is Nicole Kasperson, Deputy Editor of Auto Finance News, and I will be your host during this roundtable. The coronavirus outbreak has resulted in an economic recession spurred by shelter-in-place orders that have shuttered doors for non-essential businesses, including most car dealerships. In response, virtually every auto lender has implemented some sort of payment relief program that allows consumers to defer payments either with or without interest. However, no good deed goes unpunished, and there are many compliance considerations lenders will have to keep on their radar. Our guests are here to provide insight into what to expect. Mark and Kelly, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yes, and to kick things off, could we just first get into uh, explaining why these deferral programs can be tricky for auto lenders to navigate? Sure, thanks, Nicole. Um, before we get into the why and how these programs can be tricky, I thought it'd be a good idea to try to talk about what our high-level goals are for a finance company to institute these kinds of programs. And the bottom line is we're trying to help the customer. These are very unusual times. Everyone is feeling some sort, uh, form of pain, be it financial distress, medical issues, or both. And so these programs are really intended to create a good solution for customers to create goodwill and also to create a, a pattern uh, where you can you know, create goodwill within your customer going forward. But as the topic suggests, there is a potential for things to somehow go awry during a program. And so what you need to do is to protect yourself from some pitfalls of your good deed for your customer not actually turning out the way you plan. So what's really important is to create a very good legal framework for how this program is gonna be implemented. Um, you also wanna be sure that you avoid unintended consequences when you get examined later after the fact and people, the examiners go back and look to see how you ran the program and how your customers were treated. And also you wanna to try to set your customers' expectations so that they know what's gonna be happening either at the end of their contract term with you or when they end their relationship with you, the finance company. So some of the things that we're gonna to touch upon uh, during our session today is how is the program going to work? What is the deferral period? What are some of the other issues, the nuts and bolts of setting up your deferral program? Who's eligible? And how do you determine who those customers are who are eligible to participate in your program. Um, were there other items that were included in the uh, amount financed that are also gonna be part of the payment deferral that are unrelated to the vehicle that was financed on the retail installment contract? How do you report your customers to credit bureaus during these trying times? And how do you make sure that you do that correctly? And finally, and oftentimes, most importantly, can your system support a deferral program along the lines of what you from the business side would like to set up to make sure that your system needs are in alignment or your system um, 
parameters are in alignment with what your goals are and what the business rules are that you're trying to set up for your program. And so with that, I think we can move on to get a little bit more granular into some of these items. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. And yes, let's jump into some of those specific issues lenders are facing. Why don't we start with the uh, eligibility and proof? What sort of documentation are you seeing companies require? And um, what are some uh, deferral options? Hi, Nicole. This is Kelly. I'm going to take this question. When these ideas of providing relief to customers were started uh, to get some momentum, we have seen a lot of really creative thinking. And in the few weeks since lenders have started to offer relief, the expectation about documentation and eligibility has evolved. So if you'll just humor me for a moment or two, I'm going to explain a little bit about what companies were thinking about a few weeks ago and maybe where the updated thinking and learning is right now. So general principle, when we're thinking about the relief offered and what we're going to evaluate, what's gonna be reviewed, one of the key tenants needs to be consistent application. We wanna make sure and lenders should be thoughtful that they are putting in place a program that will be applied in a fair manner, in a meaningful manner, and really importantly, in a consistent manner. We don't want a certain population of customers to be given relief and others not when they are in a very similar situation. That said, the eligibility elements and attributes have evolved. So a few weeks ago, we had a lot of thought about this idea of providing relief to customers that perhaps live in a particular state or a particular city where the government or the governor or mayor had declared some emergency order. And taking a very surgical approach, you know, only people in this area get the relief, only people in that area get this type of relief. That thinking has evolved and right now, we are seeing lenders adopt a much more nationwide approach, not getting into that level of granularity in terms of whether you live in an area that is entitled to relief or whether or not you are a resident of a city that is eligible for relief. So most lenders we're finding are, I guess, loosening up those types of attributes and, and sort of criteria for eligibility. Instead, the more material eligibility now is looking at the customer's real life situation, meaning are customers saying that they need relief due to financial need or due to a medical need. And most, most lenders are adopting a pretty reasonable and moderately light touch uh, documentation standard, Nicole, we're not finding that lenders are trying to make the process too hard, meaning we're seeing a continuum where some lenders are simply requiring a verbal expression of need. Um, times are tough. I'm being financially, I have a financial impact. And that type of verbal statement is adequate. It, it's enough to get the wheels running. Other lenders, perhaps due to the business that they're in or their customer base, have been adopting a little bit more stringent requirements, and not stringent in any type of underwriting in a traditional sense, but more stringent in the sense that they would like their customers to provide a written request, whether that's via email, or more traditional printing something out and mailing it back in. Our note of caution on those types of 
formalities and conditions is that, again, people are dealing with very unprecedented times. Working from home, potentially having some limitations on mobility. And so the idea of being able to print something out, going to a post office, maybe something that a lot of customers are uncomfortable with. So we are encouraging our lenders, our lender clients, and just you know, people that are in this industry to be thoughtful about any conditions that are required to get this type of relief, making it reasonable, of course, and in a way that can be memorialized, but not creating too many burdensome requirements for the customers that make it ultimately unworkable or are not meaningful to your customers. Once, one other point about the eligibility, um, some companies have given thought to whether it's reasonable or required if it's uh, documentation on proof. And like I said, most companies are adopting a demonstrating or just simply saying, I need help. Other lenders have adopted a perhaps more evidence-based request where they would like some type of evidence that the customer has been laid off or filed for unemployment or even some type of a personal statement that they have a particular financial need. I think that is useful for some companies, but it is, my opinion, not where most lenders are right now, but it is certainly a strategy that some lending and auto finance clients have adopted based on their customer base. So Nicole, let's say once we get comfortable that need has been demonstrated or that the lender has feels comfortable um, and knows that their customers are requesting relief. The second component on the, the way that I think about it is documentation in and then documentation out. And so if you are in a situation where the customer has demonstrated need, met whatever conditions you have adopted, the second component is on the lender side to then send something back out to the customer that explains what type of relief has been provided. And with this, it's interesting because depending if you're in a lease or a retail transaction, the laws will be a little bit different. One thing that we always are recommending clients be very thoughtful about are state laws that regulate and require a written agreement or a buyer's signature as to a change of the terms of the agreement. So to the extent you are offering a deferral or any type of payment relief, uh, that is technically a change of the payment obligation. And some states will require the parties to enter into a written agreement. That said, due to the concerns that I identified earlier, that's an operational challenge. And so some lenders are either comfortable with the risk or perhaps have talked to their appropriate regulatory agencies and have decided that in light of the circumstances that we're facing right now, understanding that this is unprecedented times, instead of going forward with a formal written agreement, the idea is to send a one-way confirmation of the terms of the conditions. So that is certainly not free from risk, and uh, we're not sure if every state is going to agree with that approach, so there is still some ongoing examination risk with that. But it is a solution that some lenders are adopting in light of all of the unique challenges of accessibility and access to the traditional ways that we would think about modifying an agreement or entering into a modification. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for all of that insight. Um, based on everything you just said, I can only imagine just how busy you guys are um, in these times, uh, even more so than before. If, if things were tricky before, um, I can only imagine uh, what it's like now. And just even because 
of, um, you know, obviously uh, financial institutions aren't necessarily um, known for being uh, quick all the time. So just like having to be so fast with these responses and figuring out what is that seamless way of communicating with your consumer in such a like in such a crisis is um, is so is so important. And so thank you for breaking down you know those those um, kind of scenarios and options um, and ways to make it kind of the best way possible yeah, for for consumers. Um, so how might these uh, deferrals maybe trickle down? and affect finance uh, and insurance products and maybe vehicle protection products. Sure, I'll, I'll pick up on that. And, and you're right, Nicole, there, there is a lot of nimbleness from both the, the business side and then our need to make sure that, that we can be responsive and, and help, help our clients come up with creative solutions to things that may not necessarily be easy to get from point A to point B. Um, one of the things that we have to remember is that oftentimes a payment that's being deferred includes more than the principal and finance charge on a retail contract or the, or the rental payment on a lease or even principal and interest on a loan. And there are other items that are included in the amount that's financed that make up part of that payment. And in particular, I'm talking about credit insurance type products, credit insurance, credit life, credit disability, and also vehicle protection products like service contracts, extended warranties, and other items that um, are in addition to the actual vehicle that was purchased. And one of the things that um, the, and again, it goes really back to the disclosure that Kelly was talking about, the way to make sure that you appropriately document the, the the deferral program, because ultimately, whether it's something that you get a borrower signature on, which is most likely unlikely, or at least communicating a confirmatory understanding of the program, you need to explain to the customer that there may be products or items whose lifetime may not extend as long as the deferral period. So for example, if someone were to have Finance the vehicle on a 48-month retail installment contract and purchased a service contract that was for uh, 50,000 miles or 48 months, whichever came first. If you give somebody, if the if the finance company were to grant a three-month deferral, the end date for the contract is now 50 months after the date the contract was signed. And that service contract is not deferred. That service contract has a contractual term that ends at the end of the 48th month. So if something were to occur to the vehicle and the customer needs to have some repairs on the vehicle, and particularly a vehicle that's now 49 months old, um, where something may have been a covered um, item under the service contract, that customer is no longer going to have coverage under the service contract because it expired by its contractual terms. And so um, what you need to be sure happens is that this disclosure explains to the customer that we are deferring the financed amount of the purchase of the vehicle and that if you purchased other products at the time of purchasing the vehicle, 
that those will the terms will not be or extended. Now, one of the things, uh, one of the types of uh, products that can also be purchased, as I mentioned, are insurance products, and typically those types of credit-related insurance products run with the balance. So if you purchase credit life or credit disability, you are basically purchasing a product that says, if I die or become disabled or become unemployed during the term where I owe money to you, the financing source, this, this third product, third part, third party product, the insurance product will pay you the balance. And so typically those do not expire and those will run with the extended term of the contract. But again, you need to make sure that um, you at least alert the customer to the possibility that there may be even an insurance product that might have run for an extended or a specified term. So someone may have only purchased a 24 month credit life policy because that's what they wanted. They wanted to make sure that for the next X months they were covered. Um, if that product was available in the state where they financed and purchased the vehicle, then again, that would be very similar because it has a stated contractual term. So again, it all goes back to what we talked about before. You need to make sure that you set the expectations, that you document the expectations, because this is one of the pitfalls. No good deed goes unpunished and someone's expectations are not being met, not because there was anything wrong with the program, but it's all about how it's discussed and disclosed to the consumer. So little things that sometimes people might forget because we're all focused on a payment and we need to go back and think about from a process perspective, what is included in the amount that is being financed and represented in that payment that the customer is making and those payments that are being deferred. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for that, Mark. I mean, I do not own a car because I live in New York City, but I can only imagine what it's like um, you know, as a consumer to just automatically think that any kind of deferral or any kind of relief from my lender means kind of this blanket, um, like this blanket situation across all of the, the things that I owe or have, have payments on, right? And, and so that's, that's, a, that's definitely some clarity there. And if they don't clarify with the consumer, then then the consumer gets angry and then the regulators start noticing and it's just like this terrible effect. So it's like just, you know, nip it in the bud to begin with, right? And, um, you know, start start at the beginning with the communication of the consumer. So that is super insightful. Um, you know, I, speaking of regulators uh, and, and bureaus, uh, many auto lenders have also stopped reporting uh, to credit bureaus during this time. And what are some of the uh, compliance issues that they should keep in mind in terms of credit reporting while a deferral program is in place and once it ends? So Nicole, credit reporting is always a, such an interesting idea and an interesting hot topic. Uh, and it's not any easier and any uh, less burdensome in this environment because of the deferral programs that you mentioned. So for credit reporting, there's a couple of compliance issues that we need to keep in mind. We have, what does the law say, federal law, and then what do organizations like the CDIA, who established the Metro 2 guidelines, and then really what's been interesting in the last, you know, even few days, few hours, and what are the states doing? So from a compliance perspective, I think we need to start with federal law. That really drives a lot of our advice and a lot of what 
companies need to be thinking about. And right now, that's the CARES Act. And the CARES Act is pretty clear about what furnishers need to do and how they need to report information. So if a furnisher does in fact provide some type of accommodation, like the deferral programs that we've been discussing, and the customer makes a payment under that plan, or for example, is perhaps not required to make a payment, the furnishers have one of two options. Number one, they can report the account as current. Alternatively, if the account was delinquent before the hardship or the deferral program was put into place, the furnisher, the lender, may continue to keep that status while the plan is in place. If the customer brings the account current during the deferral period, then the furnisher needs to transition and begin to report the account as current. So those are the two rules that apply while a deferral program is in place, which is interesting because those are usually short time accommodations. Uh, so it's always fascinating to think about the burden that this creates for a lot of our lending uh, partners trying to put in a lot of these stop gaps and emergency solutions to pretty short-term issues. So then after what does the CARE Act say, which is, you know, to your question, Nicole, the indication there is that the right answer is not to stop reporting, right? It's the expectation of these continue to furnish. Um, CDIA, which is the Consumer Data Industry Association, they have something to say about this. So we recommend that furnishers not only consider federal law, but also take a look at what the CDIA has said about the Metro 2 specific requirements. And so the CDIA's website is fantastic, and they've posted a fact sheet. And the fact sheet provides clarity about how furnishers should satisfy and comply with the CARES Act and this expectation to report an account current when there really is a hardship in place. We would direct your attention to FAQ 58, which as CDA has acknowledged is an existing piece of guidance that has been in place for any natural disaster or declared emergency. Excuse me. And FAQ 58 provides very specific guidance about um, how furnishers should report this information about a quote current status if that status is due to a hardship accommodation or a deferral program. One of the most important parts that a lot of regulators have pointed out is that they don't want customers to be harmed by this. And apparently Vantage Score and FICO have stated that the designation of a quote hardship or a deferral program will have a neutral effect on the credit score. So the consumer should not have an adverse effect due to this accommodation. And then the last point that I just quickly will highlight is despite what is going on at the federal level between CARES Act and uh, CDIA, some states have started to step forward. New Jersey, as of the day that we're reporting this, has introduced legislation that would make it a lot more challenging uh, for furnishers in terms of how they report information. Uh, states have requested that furnishers cease reporting negative information for 90 days or other period of time. The states are right now, for the most part, requesting, asking that furnishers do this. With few exceptions, we haven't seen any mandatory rules. If that happens, like New Jersey, we are leading up to a potential challenge as to federal law and CFPB and CDIA expectations about continuing to report and states that are perhaps requesting and expecting furnishers to suppress reporting negative information. We, I can see, Nicole, some inconsistencies and some challenges from a compliance perspective as to how furnishers 
navigate that tension. Mm-hmm. That's that's super interesting. It's and it's I guess it's just not uh, necessarily surprising that you know the states would kind of come in and, and make sure that their voices are heard at this time, right? And and um, kind of put their two cents in. Um, it's definitely a lot to to process and, and navigate with. Um, and just for my last question, I, I do want to ask, um, you know, what sort of system limitations on the servicing side of the business should lenders be aware of? And Mark, do you want to maybe uh, kick us off and Kelly take us home? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> sure. So uh, what I would say is, first of all, and I think the, the most important thing to think about from a, the, the, the servicing side or the system limitations is nimbleness. And I think um, I'm going to turn it back to Kelly for a second because I think there's some good continuity from what Kelly was just talking about on the um, credit reporting as it relates to system issues as well. And then there's some bigger picture system issues uh, and, and other items. But I think just from keeping everything front of mind, since Kelly did a nice summary of the issues that are there with as it relates to the legal requirements, I think there's some practical issues too that need to be brought in. Yeah, really quickly about credit reporting. I, I think it's going to be challenging from a from a servicing system to uh, suppress certain types of information. So we're really looking at a challenging time where states may be expecting lenders to have, as Mark pointed out, this nimbleness to be very granular, suppress certain type of negative information for customers in certain states. And I'm not confident that with the resources, the time crunches that we're the time crunches that we have, and just fundamental capacity and ability to do things like that, that's one of the servicing challenges that I anticipate specifically with credit reporting. Another credit reporting issue that we need to be planning ahead for is we're talking about treating an account as current when it's um, you know performing under a hardship plan. And the CARES Act talks about if someone was delinquent pre, performs during the hardship plan, transitioning them to current. Well, one of the very granular pieces of information that is required under Metro 2 is the date of the first delinquency. And CDIA has explained that furnishers need to make sure that that original delinquency date is the original delinquency date, not the post-hardship delinquency date. And that will be something that, you know, if your system is just running according to schedule and has a lot of codes and rules in place about how we treat performance, non-performance, performance, we can't go too quickly. But furnishers need to make sure that that original delinquency date goes back to the original date, nothing that is impaired or changed by the hardship program. Oh, that's very true. And, and that kind of flows into my kind of overall comment. Both from the legal and operational side, we know that some of the greatest ideas or the greatest workarounds or the greatest fixes that we may have to a certain program all get squashed when we find out that the system can't do it. And here we are in a situation where you need to look to see, does your system have the capability to do this now? Not putting it on the agenda for 2022 or the calendar for 2021 with the developers and the IT team. And I'm not, I mean, this is the reality. There's a lot on their plate. So 
what has to happen is this needs to become priority one through 10 um, within the IT team, the development team, the system team, and also understanding, as Kelly indicated, regardless of what you can program, is your system even capable of being able to adjust on the fly to this type of program where you are trying to implement, come up with an idea on Monday and have it go into effect on Wednesday. Um, so that, you know, let's say you are able to do that and you get your systems and you get everybody in place to do it. Um, how do you document the program and the customer experience? And one of the things that is very important is training. Part of the system isn't just the ones and zeros that are in your overall origination and servicing system, but the system also relies on the human element. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the, your, your employees, your customer service, your IDR, your whatever it is that you're involved in having that customer facing experience. How are you training your employees to handle the requests that come in? For example, are they being trained to understand certain buzzwords that if a customer calls and says, I'm having a really hard time or I've been sick um, and they don't necessarily drop the word COVID-19 in the course of the conversation. Um, you know, how does your, how do your frontline people who are the ones that are supposed to be there for a customer who maybe didn't go to your website and see that you're offering a COVID-19 program or didn't see a, a heart-wrenching commercial on television about how you're there for them. Um, those kinds of things, you need to make sure that you have the, the training in place, the human element, because that's really the backbone of your system, because these are the individuals that need to make sure that you are documenting appropriately, that you are communicating appropriately with the customer, trying to be nimble uh, and trying to be respectful to what the customer says. Another aspect of the system that also needs to be looked at is pieces and parts that are ancillary um, to affording the deferral. Kelly's touched on credit reporting, which obviously there are individuals who are delinquent prior to asking for this deferral program. Well, what is your system in place practically if you put that car out for repossession? And how do you stop those uh, either third-party collection calls, if you've outsourced that, or if you put the vehicle out with your third-party agency for repossession, how do you flag that account now as being an account that is eligible under the terms that was set up way back in the beginning of our conversation um, to be a part of this program? And, and again, no good deed goes unpunished. You have this great system in place. You talk to your customer. You are compassionate. You create the goodwill with the customer, you put them into a deferral program, you tell them that we understand and that you don't need to make a payment until X. And the next morning, their car is being towed away because it was out for repossession. Clearly, a prime example of no good deed goes unpunished because now you have done everything correctly to set up a system, but now things further down the line weren't put into context. You really need to pay, play six-dimensional chess here and figure out all pieces, parts that are, you know, a part of your overall servicing process. And just to make things even more complicated, states, as Kelly indicated, are coming up with changes. The proposed legislation that Kelly mentioned in New Jersey. Um, there are many jurisdictions that have aspirational goals for how 
creditors should be treating their customers. And um, it's still aspirational, but those could very easily, the longer this uh, plays out, become requirements. And how do you program your system to know if someone is in New York or California or Ohio or Florida, that they need to be treated differently with respect to collection activities, um, contacting them, you've got automated collection processes that are in place. So there's a lot of system related issues that need to step back. And part of it is, I think just doing a top to bottom review and figuring out what does your system do from a servicing perspective? What are the automated processes? Where are there places for human interface? Um, and where are there places where you need to make sure that you've interjected your deferral program and the, and the processes there to make sure that your system doesn't you know, undo all the good things that you're doing? So lots to think about. Uh, it's it's a long list of things uh, to 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 think about, to be concerned about uh, issues to face, um, and I, it seems like this is just kind of the beginning um, of the of the crisis situation. Um, but you know, it, it with with actionable advice like this, with things to think about for our lender audience, it's super um, you know just be beneficial for them to kind of have these insights and to be able to watch this and 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 hear from you guys um, what they need to be thinking about, what they can do, and you know, what's to come. So with that, that is that does conclude this round table. I do want to thank Mark and Kelly once more for joining us today. Um, so just thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks for having wonderful, us. Wonderful, wonderful. And so um, I do want to let our audience know to be sure to keep tuning in to autofinancenews.net for our full coverage on the developing coronavirus economic crisis. Thank you and stay tuned. Bye.